Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and turn to uh, Philemon. Philemon is after Titus. It's in the New Testament before Hebrews. It's probably not on the list for most popular baby names for boys going on this year. Um, so last week, we, uh, and we talked about living out the love of Christ that lives in us as a way to refresh other people, to refresh brothers and sisters. And I just got to say before we start, man, I've been so encouraged this week because it just seems like you guys actually listen to that message. And um, I've been hearing all these stories of some of the ways that you've been uh, doing that to your church family, just small things, some bigger things, but finding ways to encourage your brothers and sisters and uh, be the church to your church families as a way to refresh them with the love and the grace of Christ. So, man, it's, it's just so encouraging. Like Paul says, it gives me great comfort and joy to hear that. Not only that, but I've received that from some of you. And so it's just meant a lot. And so I just wanted to affirm you guys in that. Um, this morning, we're kind of going part two uh, in Philemon. This is a short book. It's only going to be a two-week series. And, you know, today is really just a tough passage for us because we're going to be dealing with the issue of forgiveness and reconciliation Uh, And man, this is something that we're going to have to grapple with. We're not going to be able to cover every single nuance that goes into forgiving, uh, you know, our brothers and sisters, receiving forgiveness, trying to establish reconciliation. But uh, we're going to do our best in the way that Paul sort of leads us and teaches us through how he expected Philemon as somebody who had God's love and grace in him to to give that to uh, to a to a bond servant that Paul was sending back. So this week we really want to talk about this primary point, the reconciliation of God in us and through us. And how do we live that out? How do we live that out? And we're going to have to grapple with it because anything that we want to grasp and we just, we just don't grasp these things instantly, okay? we got to grapple with these things. Um, sometimes the Lord gives us these, these sort of like these, these instant breakfast-like moments in our lives where it's like, presto, the oatmeal's made, everything's great, I'm digging in, I'm spooning it out, I'm feeling nourished. Other times, most of the time, and he just grows us slowly into these things. So we're going to talk about something that we're going to have to grapple with that we grow slowly through. And you know, just so you guys know, man, I am a believer uh, in honesty behind the pulpit. I mean, I hope you guys don't think that, you know, this is something where I'm trying to present an image despite, you know, the Ohio shirt. Um, I, you know, I want there to be an honesty behind the pulpit about who I am, about who you are, about who we are before Christ. Right? The only thing separating us is this pulpit and this stage that's like six, 12 inches. Casey, how many inches? I don't know. 12 inches. All right, so we are together in this. You don't need to be looking at a dude and listening to a dude that just thinks he has all this wired because I ain't got nothing wired, including my grammar, right? So let's just keep that really straight as we go into this. And the reason why we need to be honest is because we're honest because Jesus is truth, okay? And in his word, we find blunt honesty, blunt honesty about our condition as human beings, right? Just like we go to the doc, we go to the doc to understand our physical condition. When you go to Dr. Zach Watson, he's going to tell you how bad that diabetes is for you, right? We go there to get some clue on our physical condition. Nobody goes to the doc and says, here's the deal. Whatever you find out, please lie to me. Please just lie to me. I don't want to know. It might feel that way, but we really want to know. We want to know the truth about our condition. And when you read the Bible... It's abundantly clear that we have 
a sin problem that requires reconciliation with the person that we sinned against. The answer to how we become reconciled is Jesus Christ. The tricky part, the dilemma, what we're going to be talking about today, the rub is after we become reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we are then charged with forgiving our brothers and sisters. And when we have trouble doing that, what we've done is we've forgotten about our own sin and the forgiveness and reconciliation that we have received. So every time we withhold forgiveness, it's like we're changing our status from undeserving to deserving. All right? Which is curious because a reconciled person in Christ never goes from undeserving to deserving. Right? That's a fixed status. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Like, I don't know how much clearer that dude can be with that line. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can shoot their mouth off. He says boast. Okay? Like, if God has saved you, you don't become a person who actually just deserved it the whole time. Right? The definition of this word that we use called sanctification is not that you're becoming more special. It's actually that you're becoming more humble as you become more like Jesus. That's the definition of sanctification. But we, we can think that, right? Like we can think that. We can pull that onto ourselves so easy. It's like when your kids, it's like when your kids get something for their birthday and for some reason you think they'd be all stoked out of their minds and they just become like super bratty and stingy when you give them that gift. Did he just call my kid bratty from the pulpit? No, but what's that? Yes. But what's happened... Is that your kids are boasting about something they didn't even buy, right? Like they're calling their friends over and they're shooting their mouth off because now they own something that you just literally went, unwrap it. But that's what's happening right there. They're boasting about something they didn't even buy. And then as you get older, that can tend to change. Not, not much, not as much as we think it should. But it changes because you've had to work for things. So when someone gives you a gift that they had to work for, you tend to receive it with a little more gratefulness. And that's Christ's reconciliation with us on the cross that goes in us and through us and is fueled by what we learned about last week. It's fueled by the love and grace of Christ. So this week as our setup, we're getting to the main point of Paul writing to Philemon in the first place. And it's this, okay? It was to chat... It was to write him a letter to chat about a bondservant of Philemon's named Onesimus. I don't know how I'm going to say that word every time like that. I might say it differently, but it's the, it's the, it's the name of the, the one that starts with the O. Onesimus. And this guy, this bondservant of Philemon, he ran off to Rome, apparently, with some stolen property uh, before God brought him under the preaching of Paul, who Paul and Philemon happened to have a relationship because Philemon came to Christ through Paul. So, uh, so Onesimus steals property from Philemon, runs to Rome, ends up getting saved under the preaching of Paul. And what we'll see today now is that Paul is writing a letter to Philemon to appeal to him to forgive and to reconcile with Onesimus and receive him not as he was, not as a bondservant anymore, not with the same status that he had that he went skipping out of town with, but now as the brother that he is in Christ to Philemon. 
So we're going to see a status change that had happened apart from Philemon. And when Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, he's saying everything's different now in your posture How you are to receive him has to be different. He might still be working for you, but you have to look at him differently by receiving him as somebody who is now saved just like you are. All right, so let's just dive right in. We're going to start in verse 8. Philemon, verse 8, and it says this. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ, this is Paul talking, to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Let's stop right there. You know how as people get older, they just seem to get a little more bold and a little more blunt. There's nobody in my life that was blunt to me as like my grandpa back in the day. I mean, dude just laid it out, right? He just didn't care. Filter's gone. This is what life's like. Receive it. I got to run. It's like, no, you didn't grandpa. You have anywhere to go. Like I'm just standing right here. Like I have to help you go. Like, what do you mean you got to run? Just lay it on me. But you know, give, give me something beyond that so we can, so we can work out some of the things you're trying to teach me. But that's how grandpas are. That's how old men are. Sorry if you're an old man in here and I'm describing you right now. But that that seems to be what we see. Paul calls himself out. He says, I'm an old man. He calls himself out as an old man. And he says, look, I can boldly command you something right now, Philemon. I can boldly command you in Christ to do what I'm asking. But this is what I want to do. I want to do this differently because of who I am in Christ. And he says, love is compelling me now. To come to you and appeal to you, is the word he uses, for Onesimus, who has become like my spiritual son. He's somebody who has caught my affection. He is somebody who has been there for me. He has served with me. Our hearts are tied. They're connected. He holds the affection of my heart. And interestingly, the name Onesimus actually means useful. So Paul kind of makes this play on words to point out to Philemon that this formerly useless bondservant of his has become very useful to Paul and even to Philemon, who's developed this big fatherly heart for him. We don't want to miss what's going on here, right? We don't want to miss sort of the nuance of where Paul is going with this. We don't want to miss the effect the gospel has in transforming people like Onesimus, in transforming useless deviants into useful disciples, That's what he's describing Onesimus as. There was a time when all of you, don't throw something at me when I say this, there was a time when all of you were useless to the cause of Christ. Useless. I mean, somebody may have even thought you were beyond hope. I mean, for sure somebody thought that. I mean, even today, we have friends and family members that we think are beyond hope, right? We write them off. They seem so far from Christ that we believe they've somehow slipped past his reach, right? I mean, the story of Christ coming to earth to die proves that Christ's reach is a tad bit longer than than what we imagine, right? Onesimus would have likely been one of these people to Philemon. Steals his property, gets out of Dodge, skips town, never hears from him again. And yet God miraculously 
reaches down through Paul and saves Onesimus. Verse 13. I would have been glad to keep him with me. This is Paul talking still. In order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So here's what Paul is driving at here. He wants to keep Onesimus. Onesimus has just been this, this help to him, this refreshment to him. Somebody that on the ground while he's in prison is helping him do the work of the ministry. He wants to keep Onesimus, but he's sending him back to Philemon in hope that forgiveness and reconciliation will take place. And this is what I love about Paul's heart. He is so concerned with the heart of his two brothers that he organizes the opportunity to make peace. He puts that together. Have you done that before in your own life? Do you find yourself organizing opportunities availing yourself of opportunities to try and make peace with people that have done things to you that have disappointed you, done things to you that have harmed you, done things to you that have hurt you? Have you availed yourself of the opportunity that God gives us to do that? That's the question. Paul is appealing to Philemon that the gospel that transformed him would extend to someone God has transformed now too. Onesimus may have been a bondservant to Philemon, but he's become so much more now. And Paul wants Philemon to understand so that reconciliation can happen. So he's reminding Philemon of their identity, of their shared identity, like what we talked about last week. When we read in Romans 6, listen to what this says, okay? It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This is the story of both Onesimus and Philemon. And Paul says this in Romans 6, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. From slave to slave. All right, he's not making a big distinction here other than him saying what we talk about a lot in the church is that, man, we are enslaved to something. Paul is saying you're either enslaved to your own sin in your own flesh or you are a slave to righteousness. There's no middle ground. You can't just bow out and say, I don't choose that. I don't choose that. I'm right here, brother. It's like, no, you're not. You're actually over there, slave to sin in your flesh or you're a slave to righteousness. No, I choose. You're not. You're, you're over that way. Yeah, but I, but I, but I, you know what? I'm, I'm more special than that. You can't categorize me. You can't put me on one polar end or the other. Well, I actually, I can, because Paul says here that you're either a slave to your sin and flesh or you're a slave to righteousness. So that's it. So to try to worm out of those categories is cute, but we just don't get the option of doing that according to God's word. The question is whose power are you being held under? That's what we're driving at here at the church a lot. Whose power? What idol is controlling you? What are you bowing down to? Who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? That's what Paul is pointing out to Philemon in terms of who Onesimus is now 
according to the gospel that has saved him. Let's pick up in verse 17. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So Paul here is even putting Onesimus categorically, even though he was saved through Paul's ministry, he's the same as Onesimus. He is somebody that is now a slave to righteousness. He's a brother in Christ to Onesimus. 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'm telling you, I will pay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Paul's getting a little hardcore with the language right now. Verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ And then he says, confidence of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, by the way, prepare a guest room for me. I'm hoping that through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. And then he he writes a final greeting. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then he ends with, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of the Lord being what he is confident is going to allow Philemon the space in his heart to go after forgiveness and reconciliation. So Paul says, receive him like you'd receive me. However he's wronged you, whatever he owes you, man, charge it to my account, man. I just got an American Express black card. Just throw it on there. No limit, man. Just whatever it is, throw it on there. Paul gets pretty direct here with uh, Philemon. And, you know, if you read other things Paul writes, you can't accuse the guy of not being direct. He's a direct guy. But he says, I'll repay you. But remember this, my friend. He says, you owe me for introducing you to the gospel. Now, again, he's not using that as something to hold over Philemon's head. He's just reminding him that God used him in his life in the same way that he used him in Onesimus's life. And you know what? Here's what's interesting. It doesn't matter that Onesimus has a different socioeconomic or ethnic background. Do you see the beauty in that? Do you see what Paul is doing with that? you see the, the walls he's breaking down with that? It matters that he is now a brother in Christ, which is what creates equality in God's eyes. Paul's expectation was that Philemon apply the forgiveness he'd received in Christ and reconcile with him. Paul was depending on God's grace in Philemon. He was depending on it. And so that leaves us where we stand here at the end of this very short book, wondering right now, how does this work? How does this work? We're given just this snapshot, this very, very short chronicle in the life of a man that Paul was writing a very short letter to. Even in our day and age, even even for emails, this is short, right? Even for texting, this is kind of short. I've received texts this long, by the way, which always just completely offends me because I'm like, you know, I I can scroll and I can scroll or, you know, I mean, you, you could have emailed me. How about that? And then you get the email and it's down to there. And I said, well, you could have well, no, I don't. I never say you could call me. So I just say, you know, the email's good and we can roll with that and that's how we're going to work it. So, but this is a short letter and this leaves us wondering how forgiveness and reconciliation works. And that's what I want to go through as we get to the end here. What's the posture of our heart supposed to be when we look at this? When we try to weed through 
forgiveness and reconciliation. I have three things. Number one, the first thing is this. We have been sinned against. All of you have been sinned against. We have been sinned against, but we have sinned against God. So you've been sinned against, but you have sinned against God. That's the number one thing, the first thing we need to remember about how forgiveness is supposed to happen, how we're supposed to launch into it. The status that Philemon shared with Onesimus was now brother in Christ. It didn't matter if he was his boss. It didn't matter if Onesimus was a bondservant. In other words, he was, a, he was a slave to Philemon because he pledged his life and support and service to Philemon. The fact is now they're brothers. The fact is that now they're brothers. And that's a status, by the way, that would carry them through eternity. That's what Paul's driving at here. And that's helpful for us to understand when someone sins against us. Okay? Our first thought is retribution and vindication. And I want them to get theirs. Right? Man, we are just so drawn to that. I mean, like, literally, I say that right now, and there's like this burning sensation in my heart when I say the word vindication. Because you know what? I know something about that feeling in my life. And you know what's so funny? It's so funny how righteous we become when people sin against us. Oh, the outrage when somebody does something against us. We somehow become as clean as the wind-driven snow when someone sins against us. Sorry, had that written before it was snowing. I mean, you know what it's like? It's kind of like that, that scene in King David's life when the prophet uh, Nathan came to him after he had had an adulterous affair and murdered the, 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 uh, the husband of the woman that he had the affair with. And Nathan comes in and tells him this story. It was a fictitious story about a man who was coming out against another man for not paying him back and for cheating him out of something. And David just flips out. He'd forgotten everything that he had just done in his life. He had forgotten that although he had been sinned against or somebody in his kingdom had been sinned against, he had sinned against God. So yes, on your path to forgiveness, on our path to reconciliation... We have been sinned against, but we have sinned against God. Two, our sin is as great as the sin we are called to forgive. Let me say that again. Our sin is as great as the sin we're called to forgive. Let me qualify here a bit, okay, because there's nuances, all right? All sin is great enough to create separation from God, okay? Now listen, when we go back to the garden and read about how Adam ate the apple, it doesn't, you know, that sin of eating the apple doesn't actually rank, you know, it doesn't rank up there with Adolf Hitler and, and terrorist attacks. They're standing in the garden and they ate some fruit that was forbidden. You know, you ever think about that? I mean, it's not like God was feeling cranky one day and, you know, instituted an anti-fruit eating campaign in the Garden of Eden. That's not what was going on. The sin of Adam was the pride that fueled the appetite to eat something that God had forbidden. That's what was going on. But, but if you'd been standing there in the garden watching, you probably would have said, what? The dude's not allowed to eat an apple or a pomegranate or whatever we've determined that it, that it is. It's like a new fruit every, every year now. 
it would have looked like a minor, listen to what I'm going to say here, it would have looked like a minor offense. And yet, interestingly, it was this sin that plunged all of mankind into a fallen state. Isn't that strange? Our sin is as great as the sin we're called to forgive. My point is that there are sins that are more serious. Now, I need you to listen really closely to me saying this, okay? There are sins that are more serious, that are more grievous, that are more damaging than others. There are. But they all come from a heart that is bent toward pride and rebellion. So in that sense, our sin is as great as the sin we're called to forgive in others. Paul was calling on Philemon to see Onesimus as the same forgiven person he was. Your sin, my sin, is great enough for you to need Jesus as much as a sinner that's greater than you. Now, I know there's a lot of nuances in that, isn't there? Number three. We forgive people as forgiven people. We forgive people as forgiven people. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 1. You want to make a left and go to 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. Because the question here for us today is how do we see ourselves? How do you see yourself when it comes to the sins that you've committed and the sins that have been committed against you? 1 Timothy 1, 12 says... I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, this is Paul again, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's Paul saying, listen to what I'm saying here because it's true and you need to adopt this into your life. You need to believe it about me and you need to believe it about you. He says, the saying, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now that doesn't mean that like Paul was the greatest sinner that had ever lived. It means that the, the opinion and the heart that he pulled on himself was that there was nobody that had rebelled against the Lord like him in his own heart because he was the only one that he could be responsible for in that sin. Okay? And the question is, do you see yourself as that? Do you see yourself as the chief of sinners. I mean, we categorize ourselves, don't we? Now, we just make our own categories. We say things like, I'm not as bad as them. Probably true on some level. But Christians are different. We have a different disposition inside now because of Christ. We say, at my core, I'm the chief of all sinners, but I'm not who I was at my core anymore. That's what we're saying. That's what Paul was saying. So now I forgive as a forgiven person, not I feel bad for you because you're just not as good as me, so I'm going to bestow some forgiveness on you. But as someone who knows, look, there is no good in me except the good I have in Jesus. I mean, do you see how important it is to grasp this? 
And again, to grasp something, we have to grapple with it first. So, you know, maybe parenting's evolved, okay? Um, But my parents did this thing where they would make my brother and I, after we had this horrendous fight, face each other, say sorry, and hug. And I'm not telling you not to do that. I know, you know, we can get into the, the pros and cons of doing that. The problem in those moments was the only thing I was sorry about was that I was forced to say sorry. All right? What that did was actually make me less sorry for the thing I was saying sorry for. In fact, my parents should have made me do the same thing to them because I wasn't loving them a whole lot in that particular moment either. Right? My point in all this ridiculousness is that I saw my brother as the wrongdoer which only confirmed my status as the wrongdoer. So here's what I'm doing in that moment with my brother Jason. I'm condemning another person without seeing the condemnation of my own sin that had to be removed. Jesus has reconciled you if you are one of his sons or daughters. You have to let your mind settle on this truth. In the same way that Paul willingly paid for Onesimus' debt, Jesus has paid your debt. He's paid my debt. If you go into any situation requiring forgiveness without any consideration to the forgiveness you've received in Jesus, then it's just compulsive lip service without any heart transformation. You guys tracking with me on that? We forgive people as forgiven people. Now, let me clear up a couple of things as we close. The first one is this. Forgiveness is not always instant. It's not always instant. Forgiveness is something that we bring daily before the Lord. And you know what? God's grace, it abounds for us in this process. It's a hard process. There are nuances to the process of coming in to a state of heart that allows you, by God's grace, to extend forgiveness to another brother or sister. Some of you have been sinned grievously against. And that has to be mentioned. Some of you have been sinned against grievously. Forgiveness is not going to be something microwavable for you. You can't just pop it in and presto. That's not what it's going to be like for you. It's something you pursue through an ongoing and honest plea before the Lord, where he unravels the layers of pain and bitterness while unleashing the healing power of his spirit to restore you. That's what's happening. So when we talk about this level of forgiveness that Paul here is advocating, we're not talking about any spiritual magic potions, okay? We're not talking about how to find inner healing in five easy steps as seen on the Oprah channel. We're not talking about that. God delivers us from the bondage that we have with the anger and the bitterness and the hurt of those who have sinned horribly against us. But it doesn't mean that it happens instantly. So forgiveness isn't always instant. And secondly, you can aim for forgiveness and not receive reconciliation. We aim for forgiveness, but it doesn't mean we receive reconciliation. I can think of two brothers right now in my life, currently, that are in a state of unreconcilable categories. 
I mean, these are brothers that I've gone to. I've asked for forgiveness, and I've just received no return and no reconciliation. Now, I don't say that to say something awesome about myself. That was a long process, to be honest. But I'm saying that when we go to somebody and we say, I forgive you. I see the way I've sinned against you. I even understand the way you've sinned against me. I'm coming to you as a way and in hope of reconciling because you are a brother or sister in Christ. Man, we've done what we can in the moment. God has to grant reconciliation, but it's not going to happen until the other party comes to repentance. There is no reconciliation unless both people come to repentance. We're just not guaranteed that. But we go after that. And if reconciliation is not given, you know what happens in those moments? When those, those moments with people that we cannot find resolve, you know what happens in the struggle of those moments? God gives us grace through the desire he's created in our own hearts for reconciliation. Don't minimize that. Don't minimize the desire to even want to forgive and reconcile. Because it comes from a heart that God has forgiven and reconciled to become that heart like his that wants to forgive and reconcile. But you can't manufacture it in others. And because of the fall, there will be people that we attempt to reconcile with but receive nothing in return. So the caution for us, the guard for us, is we need to make sure we don't allow that to turn in on us. And cause us to doubt the attempts we made that, again, were born out of a desire God gives us to reconcile. Let God's grace be sufficient in those moments, even though the pain and the struggle is real. Does that make sense? And here's what I want us to take away. What's interesting about this when we read this is we, we really focus on Philemon, don't we? We kind of put ourselves in his place We sort of imagine that this letter was being written to us. We imagine ourselves having somebody in our lives that God is bringing to us that we're going to have to bestow a level of forgiveness to in hopes of reconciliation. We kind of think, yeah, you know, I think I could, I think I can do that. I think I can allow myself to forgive. But what's so interesting is that in reality, We're not so much Philemon as we are Onesimus, aren't we? We're the ones who need to repent and to ask forgiveness. We are in the place that we can always be going to God to ask that he continuously will forgive us for the ways that we sin against him. Man, it's easy for us to drop into the place of Philemon here, when in reality, what we really are is the slave that stole everything and skipped town. We're really the ones that need to go to Christ on a daily basis and beg for his forgiveness. Before we can be Philemon, we need to be Onesimus. That's what's really going on in our lives. Because before God, we were all Onesimus. And we have nothing. We have nothing else to bring to God but our debt and our repentance. It's death in taxes. It's death in taxes. 
We have nothing to bring before God but our debt and repentance. God is so committed to our reconciliation, though, that I want to end. If you want to turn to Ephesians, make a left, go to Ephesians 2. Because I want us to get a picture of the commitment that God has for his joy, for our good, for the glory of God to be reconciled with us so that we can be in the place of Philemon and have that level of forgiveness to extend to our brother, whether there's reconciliation or not. Ephesians 2, and it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mean, Paul's not trying to make any of us feel good. You ever get around people and you just say, man, every time I'm around them, it's like a bummer. And I feel like I'm, I'm always looking for some positivity or optimism. I never get it. Paul. Then he says this. Verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have full reconciliation. We have full forgiveness. And we have a full heart to extend it to the best of our abilities to our brothers and sisters, praying and hoping for reconciliation, but knowing that God is giving us grace in this fallen world to endure through whatever the outcome may be. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reconciliation that we have in Christ. Thank you that we've been forgiven Lord, forgive us for taking it so for granted. Forgive us for being so arrogant towards those who have sinned against us. People that we are able to come alongside and go to and seek forgiveness through that we fail to do because of our pride. Because of the hearts that we cultivate so easily inside of us that say they are worse sinners than we are. They have done worse harm against the cause of Christ than we have. Lord, help, help us deal with the foolishness of that. Help us deal with the lie of that. And Lord, work through the nuances that we all experience with what it means to go after others for forgiveness and for reconciliation. And Lord, even today as we think about these things and we have people that come to our minds, people that we have let relationships Uh, that have become unraveled, relationships that are now lying dormant. We want to wait for them to come to us, but I pray that you give us strength to go to them so that you can use that as an opportunity to soften our hearts and maybe soften theirs. And we can experience once again what it means for you to have saved us and forgiven us and have soft hearts towards us. So we pray for forgiveness. We pray 
for reconciliation. And we pray for the grace that you extend to us in all of these situations that is sufficient for whatever happens. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.